before the v- listeners hear this, they will have heard me record an introduction mm-hmm. about you. Yeah. So they'll give a little bit of, I will give them a little bit of background, how we know each other, right. blah, blah, blah. So, um, Out of desperation. You yes. Include that part? Yeah. I couldn't find anyone else to interview, so. The bank said, go write a business plan. I said, I don't know how to do that. But <laughs> Dick Kimball, Pete Worrell can help me. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Worrell, and I'd like to welcome you to this episode of the Positive Enterprise Value Podcast. The podcast is found on our Bigelow website, which is BigelowLLC.com, where we freely share it and other immediately useful information with high-performing entrepreneur owner managers who want to build their enterprise value and possibly create a capital gain someday. For over 30 years, I've had the fun of meeting with thousands of EOMs and working with hundreds. I've seen that successfully striving for achievement and ultimately fulfillment leaves clues, kind of breadcrumbs in the forest, if you will, that we can follow. Deconstructing the behavior of high-performing EOMs lets us learn a lot about peak performance and optimal experience. So, in this series of podcasts, I interview seasoned successful entrepreneur owner managers who are high performers, maybe even peak performers in their niche domains in both the for-profit and not-for-profit areas. We look for patterns of connectedness across those domains. Today, I'm thrilled to share with you a private one-on-one interview with my longtime close friend and podcast guest, Chris Pierce. He's the principal owner of the Dingley Press, one of the largest catalog printers in North America. Chris's story will be uniquely interesting to all of you who are entrepreneur owner managers as he actually has acquired Dingley twice. The first time in the 1980s when it was a tiny $3 million business in Freeport, Maine with just one customer, you guessed it, L.L. Bean. He built it into one of the largest and most successful catalog printers in the country before selling it in a recapitalization to the Sheridan Press which is a private equity platform business. Nine years later, he then acquired it back from Sheridan. Chris freely shares his thoughts and emotions on the whys it made sense to choose Sheridan as the new owner of Dingley, and why, nine years later, it made sense to reacquire it with Eric Lane, the CEO with whom Chris had already worked for 20 years. Chris is just one of the smartest and most pragmatic business owners you've ever met. In this podcast, he speaks candidly about his motivations of originally acquiring Dingley, his differentiated business strategy, his care for employees and other stakeholders, balancing professional and family time, and some reflections on his fairly short stint as a public sector civil servant, along with what happens next. This podcast was recorded live on May 20th, 2019 at Bigelow headquarters. As always, these podcasts are unscripted and largely unedited. Chris has accomplished something that few EOMs do. Acquire a business, build it and run it successfully for over 20 plus years, find a new acquirer who buys it at a high enterprise value, buy it back, run it again with the management team that you helped groom on the way up. I know you'll enjoy this interview. Chris, I want to thank you for uh, being with us on our podcast, Positive Enterprise Value, today. Glad to be here. And um, before we get uh, going on recording, I think you and I were just thinking about, we think we met each other in 1989, 1990, something like that. Yes, it was. And um, 
since then. Uh, Chris Pierce has been a very close friend of mine and of Bigelow's for almost 30 years. He's a, uh, a champion of an individual and an incredible independent thinker, which I think you're going to hear. Chris, um, many people know you who would listen to this center, to this podcast. Many people know you as a successful entrepreneur and as the owner of the Dingley Press for a very long time. But if you could use a noun or two, let's say you were describing what you do. If you could use a noun or two, how would you describe what you do professionally day by day? I try to pay attention. Uh, that's not a noun, but that's a phrase. And I try to take one day at a time. That sounds like a uh, trite thing to say, but in the early part of the, the business cycle, it was not successful. And I thought if I continued to just plow ahead that I would eventually be successful. And I think that's, that helped me in the, in the years where it was not successful. So um, that's probably about when we met each other, right? It's probably what you were referring to, that it wasn't completely successful at that point. I was even before that, Pete, really. I mean, I bought the company in 1980, and between 80 and 88, it was difficult, particularly in the first five years where we had to build the business from a very low number to a number that made sense from a cash flow standpoint. And the first four or five years were difficult for the company, even before I met you um, in 1989. So um, so you try to pay attention, and you take one a day at a time and focus your energy. Um, and you're an entrepreneur through and through. Is that what you thought you were going to be when you were a kid growing up? No, absolutely not. What did you think you were going to be? I don't know, but I, did. I, I, I wanted to be a sportscaster. So I did. I, I broadcast high school basketball games for $10 a game in 1972. And uh, that did not have long-term profit associated with it, in my opinion. So that's, that's what I did. How I long did you do that for? I just did it for a year. It was kind of a nighttime thing. I was actually working at the Dingley Press when I was doing that. So, uh, Was yeah. that your first job? The Dingley Press? Well, or being a broadcaster, or what yeah. was your first job? Well, my first job, really, as a paid employee, was at the Dingley Press in 1972. Wow, making $3.50 an hour, which I, I, I saved money doing that actually <laughs> seven grand a year. How is it that you came about to own the Dingley Press? Well, I had been working there since 1972. I graduated from college in 1971, <clears throat> and I took a job at the Dingley Press because I thought I could be involved in a small company and have some impact on the direction of the company at a pretty young age, since there was only a president and then me. So it was just a, a company of 35 people at the time, or 40 maybe. And uh, I thought being uh, involved at the ground floor of a company and having a chance to be involved in its management uh, would, be, would be interesting. And as it turned out, it wasn't interesting at all for quite a while, uh, because we had one customer, L.L. Bean, and that's all we did was print their catalogs. And the, the, the job the most important thing I did was cut the grass and shovel the snow, actually. And then I also I went down to pick up a check from L.L. Bean every Wednesday. So <laughs> I was not uh, maturing as a business person, in my opinion, during that period of time. But I had the opportunity to mature quite quickly in 1980 when L.L. Bean notified us that they were not going to uh, continue their contract with us, which we'd been which we'd had for 50 years, but L.L. Bean was moving very quickly, and they needed a much larger printing company to, to do their work for them. And so when they did that, are you setting up that that's when you became the owner of the Dingley Press? Yes. I actually went to the owner of the company and told him that I was going to leave the company since the L.L. Bean catalog was 95% of our business, and I had two small children, and I thought the company was going to go out of business. And so I told him that I was looking for another job, not with a gun to his head, but just a, it was coming in the next six months. And he said, why don't you buy the company? And I said, because I don't have any money. 
and I don't even think this company is going to succeed. So the combination <laughs> of those two things made me think that maybe uh, there was greener grass elsewhere. But um, I didn't have to pay a lot for it, so I just thought I was 32 years old, and I thought, well, if it doesn't work, I, I do have enough confidence to think I could do something else. And, 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 and by the way, it, it actually might work. But that was not what I was thinking the first two or three years here because it wasn't working. So that was about 40 years ago. And as you moved yeah. from employee, shoveling snow, picking up the check, uh, making sales, doing all the other things you were doing, as you moved from being an employee to being a business owner, what was your biggest surprise about being a business owner? Uh, I think the, the, biggest, the, the biggest surprise was that I didn't, I, I had no business training at all. So there were a lot of things that came down the pike that I just had to try to try to figure out as I went along. And um, I probably didn't realize the complexity of change within an organization. And uh, I also had no sales force at all. So I had to kind of invent that as I went along. And mostly between 1980 and 1988, I did the sales by myself. And uh, the company got up to a point where it was, the year after I bought the company, again, the company did $6 million in business when I bought it. The yellow bean catalog was 5.7 million of the six, so we went to a $300,000 annual volume, and uh, we th the the nature of the transition was compounded by the fact that we had very unique sized presses that were essentially designed to print the yellow bean catalog, which was an odd size, and that that was definitely a surprise how complicated that transition was going to be because we had to go to an industry that was generically. Uh, the trim size of a conventional catalog, which is what we did, was eight and a half by 11, just like a sheet of paper. And we couldn't print that size because the bean catalog was seven and a half inches left to right and nine inches up and down, which may not seem very different to you, but it didn't fit the presses for the conventional. We couldn't print a conventional size catalog. That was the biggest, biggest hurdle we had was to try to convince people to print our size. So we did that for seven years and we, we got by. Uh, we sold three jobs. I sold three jobs in the first year got about $3 million, and I thought, mm, uh, this actually might work. <laughs> and then the next year, uh, we had some issues in the plant, labor issues, and uh, we lost one of the three big customers we got, and we went backwards. And uh, But we managed to get that customer that left back, and we, we got it up to about 7 or $8 million in 1988, but we were at another point of demarcation, really. We determined that we could not sell this odd size very far or very broadly in the industry, so we decided to print a size that was more conventional, but not a Me Too printer. Not a, we weren't going to do eight and a half by 11, but we decided to do what is called the Dingley Press right size, which was eight inches by 10, which we thought, because our customer base was full of owner entrepreneurs, that the product would not be perceived by their ultimate customer as different in size, but we would save them money on paper and postage, which are the driving components of catalog cost, and the money saved would, be, would accrue to the owner. That was our whole idea, not something we learned from the Brookings Institution, something we just kind of went with as a gut, and fortunately it worked. Um, and so we still do this right-size catalog today, and we have since 1989. So for listeners uh, thinking about the 8.5 by 11-inch size, you know, wasn't that the size that, let's say, the, the weekly magazines were at that time? Yes, absolutely. And so the big printers were wanted to print those weekly magazines, and oh, by the way, they wanted to print mail-order catalogs that were that size also. Correct. And so, really, you uh, you had the courage to stick with the eight by ten. I think it was a really a great uh, strategic decision because it differentiated Dingley then and now. Some people might know um, that uh, you've been the owner of the Dingley Press, but you also uh, 
had a capital gain transaction where uh, the Sheridan Press became the majority owner of the Dingley Press for a period of nine years. Nine years, okay. And you were a stockholder at Sheridan, mm-hmm. and then did a round trip and ended up uh, becoming the majority stockholder at the Dingley Press again. All true. And I, I want to dig into that a little bit, but so you tried to be an entrepreneur, you succeeded, you tried to be something different than an entrepreneur, you succeeded, you're back being an entrepreneur. You think there was anything about your background or upbringing that like instilled that that feeling in you of being an entrepreneur? Confidence from my parents. How, and so you mean that that was coached or taught as part of the, the household? Example, I would say. Not coached, really. I mean, my father was a lawyer. My mother was a housewife. Um, so they, they did not have a business background per se, but they always gave myself and my five siblings the uh, confidence to do what they thought they could do. And I, I really didn't know any better when I was 32. I just I grew up with self-confidence, not arrogance, that's for sure. And, uh, but they gave me the, uh, the background to think that I could succeed and I think whatever I did. And that was, that was very helpful because I think what I, what I was good at is I, was ne- I never got too high or too low during the periods of difficulty at the Dingley Press. And I think the foundational support I had as a child helped me during that transition during that period of time. You mentioned your, your father and your mother. Um, your father was an attorney, but could you answer this question? In his working life, my father was an attorney, but he might have wanted to... I think he might have always wanted to be a business guy, actually. He had great judgment. He was tremendous with people. And I always thought that he, while very successful as an attorney, he could have done a, a bunch of things. I mean, and, and and he was an early business advisor to you, right? He was, yeah, yeah. He, he he was. He was a he. I bought the company for not very much money in the early '80s, and he put some money into it. So he was actually a shareholder for a period of time, and unfortunately died before there was a, a, a capital gains transaction, which was too bad because I think when when he died, we were not uh, we had not crossed over to being profitable, which was one regret that I have about the whole escapade was that that he was he couldn't see the the fruits of his labor of his child. So that was frustrating, but those things happen. And you mentioned your mom was a housewife, but if in her working life she was a housewife, but she might have wanted to... She wanted me to be a priest. She wanted you to be a priest? Sure. Oh. <laughs> she thought I would be a priest. Sure. Uh, mm. I guess some parents don't know their children very well. <laughs> <laughs> but so... Um, we got to know each other. I think it was right about your dad's passing. But you did have some other family advisors, and I don't remember if they were stockholders. Yeah, they were stockholders at the time. Could you just speak to that for a moment? Yeah, interesting. My father was one of seven children, and he had three brothers, two of whom became uh, stockholders at the Dingley Press. Uh, uh, one of they both had experience in running manufacturing companies. One down in Mississippi, and one in one who ran a paper mill. And they were both very, very tough business guys who were retired but were interested in uh, having a relationship with their nephew uh, where they could still stay involved and still exert some influence. Uh, they weren't majority shareholders, but they were really a de facto board of advisors for me and just gave me great advice. they come up two or three times a year, beat the crap out of us for two or three days, and they then, did they'd, too. then they'd leave. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they were tough old birds. We, we learned a lot. Yeah, oh, amazing amount. Uh, tremendous. Yeah. A, a, a huge gift. Uh, both in terms of business advice and getting to know your uncles as an adult, which was just a, a fantastic uh, memory for me. Yeah, I have to hand it to you because I think that in many ways, uh, and I think I've mentioned this to you at the time, 
that I thought they were pretty hard on you and, and you and me, actually, <laughs> at the time. Uh, but uh, you always had sort of an equanimity about it and were able to take it. And you seemed to be able to take their strategic advice, which I thought was very, very good, along with some of the uh, histrionics. Well, I always like to get advice tough. when you don't have to pay for it. Usually you, you get what you pay for. In this case, that was not the case. I got great advice and didn't have to pay for it. Oh, boy, those guys were something. We're talking mm-hmm. about uh, Benji Pierce and Leonard Pierce. Right. Um, so as you um, grew as a business owner and grew as a manager, where in the business functionally did you spend your time? Did you, did you spend it in operations, in finance, in, in general management, where? Mostly in sales and general management. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not technical, so I wasn't very good at the operational part of the business. But as, again, Benji once said to me, the people who report to you have to know more than you do about the particular discipline for which they are responsible. And I always believed that and and knew that the person who ran the bindery, which is a component of the manufacturing process, was way better at that than I was. And I I thought that was great. I mean, I wanted better people to be under me than myself. But the sales part was always something I was good at, and I liked it. And uh, I thought I could bring value by having the president of the company be involved with the owner-manager person who who owned the catalog company. And so I could relate to them on a high level. I didn't. Oftentimes, we didn't talk much about the catalog printing. We talked about what they were paying for medical insurance. And so we had, I had relationships with them that it, it's hard for a, 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 a typical salesperson to have with those kinds of people because they're just at a different level, and it's not uh, no demean, diminishment of them. Or the, and so the sales part is what I gravitated to the most. And I had some good, good inside people because I knew that that's, we needed complementary skills within the organization to make it successful. And I knew what I was good at, and I knew what they were good at, and we didn't really – Crossover. So when you thought about uh, potential new customers, in your head you probably had some criteria, or maybe it was maybe they were stated on a piece of paper, but at least you had them in your head. And uh, it must have been someone who would benefit by this uh, right size. For sure, the right size thing was important because it uh, was pure, it was an economic play where we could save them money. But I also, Pete, feel that there there, at least my experience has uh, given evidence to me that. Companies, I think, in many cases, like to do business with companies that are their own, that are similar to them in size. For example, it would be illogical for us to print a Lands End catalog or L.O. Bean, for that matter, even though we could print some of those catalogs for them. I think those companies, and no criticism of them, I think they're more comfortable with organizations that are more like them in corporate structure. So what we were trying to do, we were a, a company that had you know three, four, five hundred people. And we did, you know, 75 to $100 million in business by the end or by the time I sold it. And usually we were printing for companies who were that size or quite a lot smaller. And those companies, while they had options to print with the biggest companies in the world, four or five billion dollar printing companies, they were more likely to feel that they would be an important customer to us because we could identify on a cultural level more easily than they could identify with the big competitors that we had. And that, that's how we built the business. We built it with owner-managed companies. That was very deliberate on your part. Very deliberate, yes. Very deliberate. So just to give listeners an idea of scale, and you can help me out here if, on my fact pattern if I'm not right. So when you bought the business, it was doing, let's say, $6 million, went to 300000 And over the years, you and your team built the business to be in the $100 million sales range, apples to apples. Yep. And uh, from 30 employees to 300, would you say? Well, actually, we had about 520 when we sold it in 2004. Okay, 520. So a very uh, significant operation. 
and you uh, had moved the business from Freeport to Lisbon. Correct. Um, I don't remember, but there were several plant expansions. Uh, there were many times uh, new presses and used presses were acquired. Yeah. How did you finance all that growth? We went to Pete Worrell and told us how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, in the uh, printing business, uh, it's it's not like a smooth arc that the, the business throws off cash flow that allows it to self-fund. If you get to a certain point where you're using all your capacity, you're probably at a very profitable part of your history. But because you're using capacity, it's pretty hard to go out and get another customer. You actually have to go get another printing press. Absolutely. So perfect. how did you think about that, that arc? Well, I think that we had enough self-confidence or that the business that we were serving was strong enough so that we felt that we could go take a large capital investment and then kind of catch up to it over the next six or seven years. But you're right. It's not a, it's not, you could grow five to 10% a year. You couldn't, you had to go out and borrow, you know, 15 or $20 million and then catch up with it as quickly as you could and then kind of make the money on the back half of the investment. That's, that's how the business worked. And we did that in 1999. We did it. We did it in 2000 six or seven, now 2003 or four, actually, when we sold the business. But we'd done it in the 90s a couple of times. So that is how the business works. Unfortunately, it's a capital-intensive business for a business that's not really that big. Um, but we had to go do that, and we had confidence that we could make the sales. And uh, we were able to, fortunately, we were able to pull that off. And it's an industry that's evolving, isn't it? Because uh, I don't remember when we first met where Dingley was in the industry uh scale in terms of size of catalog printers, yep. but you're probably somewhere in the maybe the top 50. Let me give you a, a metric that might Good. be interesting to the listeners. Yeah. So in uh, 2004, again, we did 300,000. We bought it in 1981, owned the company for 24 years until, 19, uh, 19, until 2004. And between 81 and 2004, the company went from 300,000 to about 100 million, which sounds like a, a large number, but at that point, when we sold it, we were the 11th largest catalog printer in the country, which is yeah. just a data point. Good. So we sell the company in 2004 to the Sheridan Group, which was a company that was owned by a couple of private equity firms, and they had four or five other printing companies that they owned at the time. And I repurchased the company in 2013. Uh, between 2004 and 2013, the company went from $100 million in sales to $70 million in sales, mm -hmm. obviously a, a pretty precipitous decline. So back to the data point, 11th largest printer in the country in 2004 in catalog. And I buy it back at $70 million. We're now the fifth largest catalog printer in the country. Right. So um, other people had either gone out of the business or been absorbed by the, the few remaining giants, and to which someone could say, you know, there've been uh, you've gone from 11 to 6, and what makes you think that you're going to be to fifth, what makes you think that you're going to be in business five years from now? That's not a growing business at the moment. So it is a question that I'm sure listeners will have, right, which is um, the sale of the business to the Sheridan Group was a great win uh, in, in every way that I can think of. The Sheridan Group is what we would call a private equity platform. That is, they uh, were in an adjacent printing space. I think they had uh, scientific and technical catalogs and some technical books, yep. right? Yep. They were not yet in catalogs like you made. And so it was sort of a third leg on the stool theory. Um, they were funded by a couple of private equity firms, and they also had some significant uh, publicly owned debt. And so we call that a, a, a platform. And no one could foresee this, but after they acquired the business, the advent of different things happening in online sales, internet, et cetera, et cetera, it appeared to me that catalog volume sort of 
the demand went down. Is that true? Is it true that the number of catalogs printed went down? It has gone down more precipitously in the last three or four years than it did in the 10 years prior to that. So we've been, Sheridan purchased the company in 2004, bought it back in 2013. Catalog circulation really didn't go down during that period of time, um, except during the period of 2008 to 10, during the, that Great Recession. That hurt a lot of catalog firms, so our volume did go down then. But we've seen uh, some declines in circulation in the last four or five years. The whole online uh, business, which had been predicted years and years before that, would damage catalogs. Uh, really didn't, I would say. Uh, people were pretty flat with it, and we actually have 12 catalog customers today who started as online companies, and they've needed to find a mechanism to communicate with their customer base, and they've actually started catalogs. So, but it is not a growing business today. That's a fact, and it's actually the, the circulations by catalog are uh, going down somewhat, and we've had to be uh, very quick on our feet to take market share from some of our competitors. So we're, we're continuing to grow but the market that we serve is not growing. So Chris, I want to come back to, to that point in 2013 again, but before we do, let me just go back to 2004. You uh, sold the business, but you became a stockholder in the Sheridan Press, there I, in their group. Yes, I did. And I think, did you go on their board of directors? No, I didn't. I oh. didn't actually. I, uh, I did reinvest in the company as part of the transaction in 2004, and I actually worked there for seven years between 2004 and 2011. Uh, I wasn't the CEO. I was the CEO for a while, and then I was not. But I had a disproportionate amount of the sales that I had generated. So, the Sheridan Group wanted me to stay on and perform that role for them. And how um, did that? How did that work for you? Uh, it clearly was different. I mean, when you're an entrepreneur for 25 years and then you work for someone else, it's different. Um, I probably wasn't the perfect person for them. Not the perfect uh, employee. No. And and um, when you left. Uh, uh, Dingley at 2011. What did you do? Well, it's an interesting question. I uh, I thought that I had uh, that my uh, that it was time for me to leave, and uh, I actually went to work for in, in the public sector. I went to work for the state of Maine as the chief financial officer for the Department of Health and Human Services. Wow. Uh, yeah, three and a half billion dollar organization, way different than anything I had ever uh, encountered, uh, and obviously a very public position uh, in a, in a uh, department that serves. Uh, you know, thousands of main people. Did you enjoy that? I did. I did. It was very stimulating intellectually. I mean, it was. I felt like I was driving. I was drinking from a water uh, fire hose most of the time. Yeah. Really, because of lack of understanding of the job content. Um, but it was fascinating to be uh, in in the public and uh, have a budget that was that large. I, I learned a tremendous amount from it, and very humbling experience. And I learned a lot about. People who work in the public sector, great respect for the people who work in the Department of Health and Human Services in the state of Maine. Some very, very good people. So uh, from the period when the business was sold to Sheridan, you first were the CEO at Dingley, and then you played a more of a sales-oriented role. I did. Who became the CEO at that point? Well, good question, Pete. Um, there was a fellow that I had hired in 1986, just walked off the street, literally. Uh, he was a financial guy, and he took over. He was uh, worked for the current bookkeeper, if you will, in 1986. And in about three weeks, he was the CFO uh, because he seemed like he had the ability to do that job. And uh, so the, his name was Eric Lane, and he took over in 1986 as the CFO and did that job uh, until, really, until 2008, actually. He was the CFO. I ran the company from, no, until 2006. I ran the company after Sheridan purchased it for two years, and then uh, they actually brought in another senior executive from one of their other companies to run it f 
for two years, 2006 to 2008. Eric became the CEO at that point. I actually worked for him uh, between 2008 and 2011. He was my boss. How did uh, that feel? Because that must have been a little different. Uh, it, it, it was fine. I had great respect for him. I just moved down the hall. I didn't really have a big <laughs> ego about the whole thing, and I worked for him for three years. And But then I thought, not because of him, but I just thought it was time for me to move on, so that's when I went to work for the state. And uh, he's the CEO of the company today. So people who are listening to this story at this moment must not be saying, what? This guy <laughs> bought the business in 81. He built it from 300000 to $100 million. He sold the business successfully to a big organization. He ran it, and he and he exited. He went into the public sector. It all makes sense. All is well. But what they don't know yet is it's a round trip because at that point, somehow, you got the opportunity to acquire the business back. So even though you felt like you were in a declining demand market, even though the business went from $100 million to 70 you felt like it was a good idea to acquire the company back. Tell us about that. Uh, well, we'll see if it's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> in 2011, I, I worked for the state for a couple of years, and then I left. And uh, this is an example of how you can always learn from your children. And my oldest son was a private equity guy himself, and he came home one day after I had left the state, and he said, Dad, what are you, uh, you going to do next? What are you doing, by the way? And uh, he said, uh, I know you get a bunch of newspapers in the morning, but you know, 9.30 comes around every day, and you finish reading the newspapers. What are you doing? And uh, I didn't have a very coherent answer to his query. And he said, what do you think about buying the company back? And I thought, well, I'm 65. I wasn't really thinking of doing that. He said, I think you could do it. It hasn't really done well for the new owners, and I think they'd sell it to you. And uh, you ought to at least call them up and ask them. So I did call the person, the CEO of the Sheridan Group, uh, who I had a good relationship with. And, of course, I'd known him since 2004, and I just asked him if they would, be consider, if they would consider divesting the company. And he paused, <laughs> which I thought meant that he might want to sell it. And anyway, we, <laughs> we, uh, we worked it out over a period of time, and uh, I en- ended up buying it back in uh, October of 2013. And has it gone since then? It's gone well. Who's, gone- who's been the CEO since then? Well, again, Eric Lane, who was the CFO for so long and became president while Sheridan actually owned the company in 2008. Yep. Uh, he ran it from 8 to uh, 13. And I was on the outside at that point. I worked there until 11, but then I was with the state. And uh, so he is the CEO, and uh, he's just doing a great job. He's, he's been with Dingley since 1986. So how's it going? It's going pretty well. We're growing. Uh, we, uh, As we alluded to earlier in the conversation, you have to keep up from a technological standpoint, and these uh, technological advances uh, require great sums of money. So we put an awful lot of money into the company refinanced the company in late 2017 and bought a new press, which is the the driving force from a capital expenditure standpoint. It's not the only thing, but it's the driver. And uh, we, we uh, changed banks and made a investment in 2018, and uh, we couldn't have done it uh, – we couldn't have waited much longer on this because our machinery was wearing out, mm-hmm. and uh, the new machine has uh, been – it is clearly more efficient than what we had before, so we're very pleased we made that investment. And just to give people a feeling for how the whole game works now, as you look at uh, new potential customers, is it customary now that the customers would have both an online site plus a catalog plus a wholesale channel? Are they multi-channel people at this point? Most of them are, Pete. I mean, some of them are pure catalogers, but they all have some sort of online presence. And, you know, we've obviously worried that online would replace catalogs or certainly put it in the background. Some of that is happening, 
But most people uh, that we print for have been printing for a long time, and they continue to print. I think that they the, the long-term trends on circulation are not to, for that to increase. So we've got to have more customers to keep our volume uh, growing. But, yes, people are multi-channel. I mean, there are some people who have retail stores. Not very many, but some do. I um, mean, an L.L. Bean, for example, not one of our customers, but they have a much uh, more robust uh, retail channel than they did 25 years ago when the catalog drove all their sales. They still print a lot of catalogs, but they probably don't print as many as they used to and uh, because they are uh, an omni-channel uh, merchant, really, and yeah. uh, many of our customers have some of those same properties. Yeah, I think there's, I would say, on the businesses that we see, there is a significant amount of what I'll call channel confusion uh, that many people we see who have very uh, powerful brands um, do have uh, a need, they feel a need for some retail presence. Um, they often have a robust website. They struggle with whether or not they should sell through Amazon. They also sometimes would have a catalog. They also might have a wholesale channel. And when you're thinking about really what makes the business successful, it's really hard to parse through that and sort that out because there's, a, there's just great confusion about where the future is. I think there is, and I think it's, I think it's particularly let's say there's a, a level of complexity for all the things that you've mentioned that is harder for smaller companies to deal with than bigger ones. And again, going back to what we talked about earlier, we still print for companies who are not large and maybe don't have the sophistication to do what L.L. Bean might be able to do on multi-channel. So that's probably a challenge that many of our customers face. And they don't have the resources to go into retail, uh, both from a sophistication standpoint and, again, they have the capital to do that. People, I think axiomatically, that work best in the presence of, let's say, um, inspirational leadership. Can you recall a time when you worked for someone or with someone that you consider to be an inspirational leader? And and what made it inspirational for you? You and know, I really, I really didn't have that kind of individual exposure. Other than to those two family members that I alluded to, they were very much inspirational to me. Mm -hmm. But I think, honestly, what kept me going more than anything else was being able to make sure that our employees could count on a paycheck. And I don't mean that in any kind of self-serving way, but that was what really drove me. I mean, we had, you know, two or 300 people, and I knew that they needed to uh, have a predictable paycheck going forward. That's what kept me going. And I also needed to finance four college educations for my family. Sure. <laughs> that kept me going as well. Sure. So uh, not, not really an individual, but more a collective group. And, uh, you know, it, it's interesting. Some people have asked me why I bought this company back. Yeah. And I'm sure I, a lot of people are asking themselves that right now while yeah. they're listening to you. Yeah, I know. Well, I suspect they are. It's a logical question. I, I think if I had to kind of summarize why I did this, I felt that in 2013 I was no longer on a team. And I like being on a team. And uh, I was on a team at the state of Maine, and it was a different product. It wasn't a profit-making enterprise being in the public sector. But so, so you found it more satisfying to be on a team than to lead? I did, yeah. Yes. I mean, I never really thought of myself as a, a leader, honestly. I mean, I tried to lead by example, but I didn't get up in the morning and think, what can I do to be a leader today? I, 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 that's not the way I think. But being part of a group and having the group succeed and watching employees get promoted within your own organization is about as satisfying a thing as, as I've been through. I mean, it was very, very satisfying to watch people come to work and uh, like to work there. So, uh, you know, over the years, I've spent a lot of time in your plants. Yes, you have. Uh, and um, you have had a wide swath of humanity in there. Um, there are people from, you know, highly educated, highly formally educated, 
um, senior managers to um, the most um, uh, beginner uh, as yet untrained um, people working at a uh, hourly wage in the plant floor, uh, working their way up. Um, you currently have 300 and something people? Yeah, 360 probably. 360, almost 400 people. And again, sort of axiomatically, people would say, people listening would say, organizations work best when everyone feels like that they're like an empowered, almost like an owner of the company. And you've got 360 people of a wide swath of capability, education, cultural background, socioeconomic background. How how does how have you handled that as an entrepreneur owner manager? How have you got those people to feel empowered and engaged? Well, that's a good question, and I would say that my current role is less involved than it was when I owned it the first time. When I was often there in the middle of the night, not because I was trying to be a hero, but I because I was a salesperson. A lot it's a twenty four seven operation. A lot of the customers come and watch the products being printed, and I felt I learned a lot about the company when at three thirty in the morning when I was up there with customers. And that's when I talk to the employees then. I do less of that today because I'm not the CEO. I, I, don't, I'm, I don't have a daily presence. So I, I, I learned a lot from those experiences uh, with the all kinds of different backgrounds, as you allude to, for those employees who were there. But and, and I, didn't, I wasn't trying to do anything other than understand them in their jobs day to day at kind of odd random times. And I always uh, appreciated what their contributions were and their willingness to be part of a team. They, they really were always. And the, and a lot of the people uh, came in there, they were very mechanical, and they might not have had the uh, direction from their own families to go to higher education, but I have enormous respect for them because they're very, very smart people, and they were able to, to take on very, very highly technical tasks, mm-hmm. uh, something that they probably didn't really know that they could even do themselves. Very, yeah, very so in some of those people, it's almost a sense of craft, isn't there? Oh, absolutely, yes, absolutely. So you um, were a sales guy, snow shoveler, pick <laughs> up the check guy. You became the CEO and the owner for a long period of time, and during that time, you also you were the principal sales guy for a long time. And... You sold the business and you stopped being the CEO. Eric's been the CEO, but you're back with the business somewhat. You're still mm-hmm. the principal owner of it. Yes. You still probably handle some customers. Yeah. It, is it difficult to have role clarity for the team? Something I worry about a lot. Yeah, it is. I mean, I'm, I'm not a day-to-day guy. I uh, have to be careful to let the people that I've hired do the work. Um and I think that there's a healthy respect between the CEO and myself. And, uh, but, yeah, it's a tricky role, and it's a role that, that, that if you've been in the trenches and been the CEO for a long time, to just step back and uh, let the people do their job, that's not simple. Um, I've tried to be disciplined about it, and I have said to my CEO, listen, if you think I'm stepping over the line and getting involved in the business too much, you tell me. And, uh, has he told you? Yeah, he has. Good. Yeah. <laughs> so... Um, Entrepreneurs in the private, the Positive Enterprise Value podcast think a lot about uh, goals and achievement of those goals. And, you know, to get to goals, sometimes you develop positive habits, good habits. We think a lot about habits. What would you say are your best habits? I think I'm pretty patient, actually, at least in terms of the development of the business. And I remember early on, there was a guy who came in, who was a newspaper reporter, actually, was doing a story on the guy that owned the company at the time. And he... uh, 
came through the plant. I was working in the plant at the time, folding L.L. Bean catalogs. Um, and he kind of laughed at me for doing that. And uh, I thought, well, you know, this might pay off at some point, but you got to kind of pay your dues. And I think in the early years particularly, I, I wasn't taken very much out of the company for many, many years. And I always thought, you know, just keep your head down. You're in a good business. And if you make progress each year, ultimately – the, the journey is really what is satisfying, not not getting not selling the company. That was I, I said to myself in the days leading up to selling the company that uh, the quality of my life would not increase after the sale of the company, and that's absolutely been true. Um, yeah, I got paid money for it, and that, that that's good, and that was that was that was worth it. But the real satisfaction was the journey, not 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 the day it was sold. Yeah, I always viewed you and Eric and your team as trying to build a business that was going to be enduring for however long and that really was a business that was going to be so good and satisfying to you and your customers that you'd want to own it forever. And if it happened that you had an alternative to have a capital gain and it made sense, well, then you had that alternative as an option. Right. And that, that happened. I was 55 years old and um, obviously, Pete Worrell, you were very helpful in uh, effecting that outcome. I think it was the right thing to do. I mean, I'd had a lot of personal debt for a long time, and there is a point. I, d I don't think I've got all the answers by any stretch, and selling the company was the right thing to do at that time. Um, it was a business that was very capital-intensive, had a lot of personal debt, personal guarantees, and those things. They wear on you, and uh, when the opportunity came, came before us to uh, sell it, it was the right thing to do. Did the company improve during the years it was owned by Sheridan? I think it actually did improve in many ways that I was not good at myself. Mm -hmm. I mean, I always felt that I was not really the right person to run a, a company of 500 people. I was better running it when it had 150 people. I just, it's, I'm not a very good process guy. And they were very good at process, and they taught us a lot during the time that we, that they owned us. And there were a lot of systems and metrics and so forth that, uh, that, that couldn't fit on the back of the envelope that I had. And uh, so we learned a lot from them. They were actually, it was probably a good thing for the company at the time. I get that. That makes sense to me that I've seen during the course of my career that very frequently um, people like Sheridan, who were sophisticated managers backed by institutional capital, they couldn't have done what you did when you bought the business and built the business. But then again, at some point, maybe there were some things they could do that you weren't going to do. Absolutely. That, 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 that was true. That was true. So here it is. Uh, what is this? May 21st, 2019. Let's say we're having a cup of coffee in 2029. What are you going to be doing? I don't know. I knew the question was going to be what's next, and I, you know that I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> no, I'm asking you in 10 years. Yeah, I know. I heard you. I heard you. <laughs> well, does, does not knowing um, what you might be doing, does that fill you with sort of trepidation or excitement? No, excitement. Uh, I'm always a, forward, a looking forward guy, and I don't know what the next chapter is for Dingley Press, but uh, – I've been, uh, you know, people say, are you glad you bought it back? Absolutely. Um, it's been intellectually stimulating for the six years I've owned it almost. And uh, there are plenty of challenges in the industry, uh, plenty of challenges day to day. But, you know, I'm not a Renaissance man. I'm not going to go read Shakespeare and build boats at night. That's just not me. And uh, I have a lot of other interests, uh, but uh, this one is still uh, a very, very central part of my life and very satisfying. I think we, we're, we, we've heard you say in Chapter 1, I was an employee with the current owner, and I, and I liked it. In Chapter 2, I became the owner of the business, and I ran it to 500 employees, and I liked it. Chapter 3, I sold the business to Sheridan, and I liked that. And Chapter 4, I bought the business back, and I liked that. Yeah. What's the best? Chapter 2 was the best. Great. The journey. Yeah. 
what advice would you give an entrepreneur, owner, manager, regardless of what industry they're in, who's listening to this, who's thinking about, gee, I'm, I'm in chapter two also, and I resonate with what Chris just said. I have personal guarantees, and I think I may have built a business that's got enduring value, but gee, someday I might want to get the, some chips off the table. What advice would you have for them as they're thinking about what their alternatives are? I would say don't get ahead of yourself on that one. I mean, I would say try to do the best job you can day in and day out. Try to be, try to make sure that the, that the revenue is something you can continue to grow. You can figure all the other stuff out, but if you don't have revenue, you you don't even have an opportunity for a problem to solve if you don't have revenue. So I would make sure that the revenue is continuing to increase. Uh, and we always felt that during chapter two that we could continue to grow the business. So I, even though you have ups and downs and trials and tribulations with all kinds of different constituencies during that period of time. If the business is growing, you can you, you can figure out the rest of the stuff and make sure that you have, you know, good employees behind you that know more than you do about their particular discipline. I think that's very important. Someone said, uh, in the end, the meaning of life is centrally tied up with what you do in your work. Do you agree? With your work? Yes. Well, I mean, it's uh, it certainly has been important to me, but it, <laughs> the family comes first. And, uh, you know, to be able to balance work and family is tricky, um, particularly if you are an owner entrepreneur that thinks about it, you know, and, and has a company that runs around the clock. Uh, I've been, I've tried to do the best I can to try to balance those two pieces. And um, do, you, do you think that there's a, a necessity of a trade-off between uh, being a successful entrepreneur owner manager and a successful I'll make it up parent, father, family person. It's hard to do them both perfectly well, that's for sure. And um, But, you know, I, I hope that in some way I was able to uh, be an example to my children that hard work can really pay off and that uh, treating people with integrity is something I want my children to do as well. And, and, uh, and, my, and my wife, who has been a total supporter of mine all the way through, through many difficult periods in the company when it was scary to her, uh, that Scary to me too, I might add. It, it, <laughs> it's uh, crucial that you try to balance those things as, as best you can because, I mean, I don't ever want to be known exclusively as one or the other, uh, but hopefully both. So many entrepreneurs who listen to this episode are going to hear uh, a story that we just told about a guy who has uh, had a lot of successes uh, in his life, almost nothing but successes as we think wow. about it. Um, but that might not tell the whole story. Uh, have there been some challenges or adversity or even a failure that, that comes to mind that was uh, instructive? Well, I think that the, the, almost the threat of failure was something that uh, I worried about a lot. I mean, I would say that uh, without exaggeration, between 1980 when I bought the company and 1994 when I actually was able to shed the personal guarantee. I felt for those 14 years, uh, honestly, I'm not trying to be dramatic here, that there was less than a 50% chance in that 14 years that the company would be there the following year. And that, that, that's, that's, that's not a, uh, a period I'd want to go through again. Um, you know, did I learn from it? I, I, I guess so. But I was very pleased when I finally thought we'd gotten over the hump. So uh, again, another word of, of advice, if you will, to entrepreneurs who are in the middle of a transition in their own company, you know, don't, 
don't quit. If the revenue is going up, don't quit because eventually you will be fine. Uh, if you uh, just keep your head down and do what you uh, utilize your best talents every day, you you can get there. But um, there were, it was a long time where I didn't think we would. My experience has been that um, as entrepreneurs succeed in life, you know, they kind of like have an arc. Although if you and I look at the arc really closely, we realize it's not actually an arc. It's like a series of jagged stair steps. True. <laughs> but but as they go in, in that arc in life, um, that my experience has been that 90% of the challenges facing high-performing entrepreneurs are psychological in, in nature. And uh, the thing that many entrepreneurs do to succeed is to do a tremendous amount of self-care. Because when you start playing a deeper game like you've been playing, um, most people, many people, have to put certain physical practices in place just to keep themselves rejuvenated, to replete, to get refreshed. What do you do to do that? I don't think I did enough of that, to be honest with you. I really don't. I, I probably uh, should have taken better care of my own health during that during those years. I didn't exercise as much as I should have. Um, I, I, so I, I don't. I, I can't answer that question with a lot of uh, credibility, really. I don't think I. I, I, I think I again. I was so focused on making the business work that it became the thing that I thought the most about in addition to the responsibilities as a father and a, and a husband. Um, but I, um, I probably didn't do those kind of self-help checks along the way that I probably should have. And now you're a father of four children plus how many grandchildren? Nine. Right. Great. Of which how many currently live with you? Uh, four. <laughs> but only for a little while. They're, they're, they're fixing up a house. So some people who listen to this podcast are going to be young, uh, maybe uh, nascent entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs who want to be entrepreneurs. Do you have any particular couple of sentences that you would give a smart, driven college student who wants to be a business owner like you? Don't expect too much too quickly. Uh, I think maybe some people who look at people who have their own businesses maybe think it's easier or more glamorous than it is. It's not glamorous and it's not easy. Uh, so I would think if you if someone is considering doing that, it, it can be incredibly satisfying, but you got to stick with it, and you've got not to expect uh, too much too soon. You just you just you have to be patient, and uh, and and and, st- and stick with it. And uh, you know that I mean I'm not saying that because that's what I did. I was maybe not smart enough to go do something else during the tough years. I probably could have done something else, but I always thought it would work. But Again, that goes back to my upbringing, which uh, I think made me feel like I could be successful because of the the guidance I had from my parents. It kind of reminds me of what people now are beginning to call Gates' Law. I'm not sure actually Bill Gates said it first. Probably there was some ancient philosopher who said it first. But the the Gates' Law is often talked about as uh, as humans we overestimate what we can do in a year, but we underestimate what we can do in ten years. And the opposite is also true. What's the worst? What are the worst recommendations you've heard recently given to young entrepreneurs? What are something that you hear and you go, oh, that's absolutely wrong. Don't listen to that. I think the worst advice that you can give us is, is, is don't, is to think that you couldn't do something. I mean, don't 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 have people talk you out of something that you think in your heart you could do. But again, if you have an idea and you have 
the ability to generate revenue, you can figure out the rest of the problems. But if you are, if you're in a business that really doesn't have a good growth pattern from a revenue standpoint, then, you know, I would worry about that. I would worry about that. You know, our um, research uh, at Bigelow, um, a piece of research we did with the University of Pennsylvania about 10 years ago on high-performing, what we call seasoned successful entrepreneurs, was a study of maybe 600 of them, so it was a big study, showed that the vast majority of them, um, I don't remember the percentage, but more than 60% of them had as their principal area of functional skill sales or marketing. The second largest area would be technology. And that could be either that someone was like a technical prodigy, Uh less likely, or more likely that someone was just like a technical tinkerer and they figured out a clever way to solve some customer problems. So I think what you're saying resonates with me that the research would show that, yeah, actually for seasoned successful entrepreneurs, having an ability to bring the solution to the customer and persuade the customer is the number one skill. Persuasion is, is I, would, I, would, I would agree with that. And I think that uh, an example that my uncle gave to me a long time ago was that if you're approaching a prospect, if you, if you owned both companies, would you, would you print your catalog at the Dingley Press? If you own both companies, and if you, can, if you can clearly say that if you own the prospect company and you own the printing company, and you thought that that prospect company would be better off with your company, then you go in with a, with a good deal of self-confidence and you have a much higher degree, a much higher chance of making that sale. I think if you could be coldly objective on that point about yourself, that is a really brilliant piece of insight. Because then it'll teach you also, if you can't, don't go there. And you should be able to make that determination. I think that's that's sometimes hard for salespeople to distinguish uh, among, among those choices, really. And I, I always felt that if I would, because not every customer is for you. It's, just, it's not. And a sale, for the sake of a sale, is generally a bad thing for a company. So finding the right opportunities and, and, and finding a cultural match usually ends up with a long-term relationship. So if you think about yourself personally, this is your chance to set the record straight. What's, what's, a, what's a common misconception that people may have about you that you feel is a misunderstanding? You're going to have to edit this one. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. So um, in this group of listeners, uh, in, in Positive Enterprise Value Podcast, we've interviewed both entrepreneurs in the for-profit sector, like you, and some in the not-for-profit sector, and they're still entrepreneurs. Um, in that group of people, superior achievement is common. Not all of them, however, would describe themselves as fulfilled or content as people. Would you describe yourself as content? Yes, absolutely. Tell me about that. Well, I mean, I think I was, again, I got a good start in life. I had uh, parents who were loving and who set a good example for me, and I think... And didn't you have a lot of siblings? I did. I have five siblings. Um, and so I think we all had the opportunity to do to do well right out of the gate. And uh, my mother was the minister of education in our family. <laughs> and... Uh, my father once said that uh, he made all the big decisions, and my mother, Sally, just made the little ones like, you know, religion, education, stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, because of that, that, that foundation, that was, 
clearly a bedrock of uh, foundational support that I had from, from from a young age. But you know, school was never that easy for me, to be honest with you. I mean, I I didn't. I had siblings who were very very good at school. Uh, what kind of student were you? I was a B student, you know. Um, so I thought I was pretty average, actually. What was your major in college? I forget. Uh, sociology, okay. which is uh, as has been described to me as vague insight into the obvious. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, uh, when I went to college, I was not uh, fully confident as a student. And uh, I went to see an advisor, actually, during that period of time. And he said, you just need to get out of school. You're going to be fine. I think you have the attributes to do well beyond school, but you need to, get a gra- you need to graduate also. So I took that advice and graduated. And do I remember after you got out of college, you went in the Army for a bit? I did. I was in the National Guard for six years. So Was that a good experience? Yeah, it was. Again, it was a very different experience for me and basic training. I met one of my long, long, lifelong friends there, and I've been great friends with him ever since, just total random kid from Houston, Texas, who's uh, just a, a serial entrepreneur himself, by the way. Um, so, yeah, it was a good experience for me at that time in my life. Chris, I want to thank you for being um, with me here on Positive Enterprise Value today. It's been uh, so much fun to be your friend and uh, to be modestly involved with the success of the Daily Press over the past 30 years. It's just been fun for us to talk about, and I want you to know that there's no one else that I can think of that figures as strongly into the Bigelow lore. (laughs) Well, you probably didn't have very many customers at that point. (laughs) Uh, And I want to thank you, Peter, because uh, in 1989, we were in trouble. Uh, as a company, and uh, the bank suggested that I uh, write a business plan, which I'd never done. And uh, I had met one of your uh, colleagues, Dick Kimball, who uh, introduced me to the Bigelow Company. Right. And the Bigelow Company uh, p- played an outsized role in the development of the Dingley Press between 1990 and 2004, which resulted in the sale of the company. And we would not have had a successful outcome uh, in many ways. It wasn't just the outcome of the, it wasn't just the sale of the company. It was the advice between. 1990 and uh, 2004, when you would come up, uh, you know, once a month and talk to us about manufacturing. There aren't very many consultants that uh, have as broad a skill base as you do, and it was enormously helpful. And I think one thing that entrepreneurs can suffer from is being too inwardly focused and not taking a step back to understand the, the, all the things that go in business, go into business, and understanding uh, having outside perspective. And you gave that to us; it was just a, a tremendous benefit. Uh, for us. Well, thank you for that. It's been really fun being with you. I do appreciate uh, myself how uh, valuable an outside coach can be from time to time. I just had a little coaching over the weekend from someone (laughs) in an area that I feel like I'm pretty expert in. And when I got done, I thought to myself, (laughs) wow, that was really helpful. Well, you're supposed to learn something every day. And uh, (laughs) I think we all do. Thanks, Chris. You're very welcome.